0: well good morning. good morning let me just make sure that doesn't come apart it's great to be back again so i thought last week was my last week but the powers that be said so i can have another week which is great so well it's great for me i don't know if it's going to be great for you but um let me put this on here good stuff and nearly as well I forgot my bible this morning that's not a good start is it uh, for a preacher uh, otherwise i we'll would have nothing to talk about would we good stuff okay so what I want to do first then is, I know there's, there's some new people here today, but I, I want to have a little recap, because I've been here for three weeks now, uh, and I want to check if you've all been listening uh, in these past three weeks. So again, our goal has been to look at these four events, hasn't it? Uh, from the end of Mark chapter 4 to the end of Mark chapter 5, which is what we're going to look at today. And we've seen how these events have highlighted Jesus' unique power and authority, haven't we? That's what we've been looking at. Uh, and again, these these events as well are really interesting. I was speaking to Nigel about this last week, how the they're over the events that have been chosen are really four things that we have really no control over. These things they can cause us much anxiety and fear because we're nothing really we can, we're at their mercy if you like. But Mark's chosen these four things as well. I think Amazingly, so that we can see, again, Jesus' power and authority. So let's recap it. Number one, in the Carmen of the Storm, what did we see Jesus' power and authority over? What was it? Nature. Brilliant. Okay. Number two, in the exorcism of the man from the Gerasenes, what did we see Jesus' power and authority over there? The demons, the demonic. Okay, finally, last week, number three, with the woman who had the bleeding for 12 years, years, again, what did we see? Jesus' power and authority over there. Sickness, absolutely. So again, these are really historical events, but Mark has chosen these four things, well, three things we've already looked at. Um, Again, nature, the demonic, and sickness. Okay. This morning is the fourth and final one, and you could say, if you like, this is the biggest the one we have an issue with, you know, again being nice for talking about this, but I'm, all of us, in some shape or form, can resonate with dealing with this, if you like, enemy. Okay, so let's take a look. So it's if you get in your Bibles, uh, Mark chapter five, and we're gonna we're gonna read through verses the whole passage again from verse 21 to 43. So it's a bit of a long one, but I'm gonna ask as well. I'm gonna ask Gabe. I was going to ask you last week, but I want to ask you now to come out and read it for us, mate. Is that okay? You can read, can't you? Yeah, Yeah, good. Okay. It's all right. Me neither. Okay, mate. So it's yeah, it's Mark chapter five, verses twenty-one to forty-three. So it's really, really. Can you see that actually? Okay. So just from here. So there. I'm follow along if you can Gabe's reading from the ESB but the NIV's fine it's very isn't?
1: small and I've got dyslexia so it's a bit jumbled but I'm, sorry I'm completely up, <laughs> and when Jesus had crossed uh, again in the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus by name and seeing him he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying my little daughter is at the point of death and lay with your hands on her, so that she may know to show that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about. And there was a woman who had had discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many positions and had spent all that she had, and was not sorry. It was not better, but rather grew worse. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the, brothers, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw, saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping, and they laughed at him, but he, was, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by her hand, he said to her, Talitha, Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, twelve years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat.
0: Brilliant, thanks mate. Thank you very much. Great stuff. And a bit of a long one. You've done really well there with that small writing as well. Let me, uh, let me pray for us before we go on. Lord, again, once again, we just want to say thank you for your word to us. Lord, we thank you that it reveals your nature, your character. And also, Lord, not only that, it reveals how you would want us to live. Lord, we thank you that we can draw from it um, faith. We thank you that it provokes our faith. And we ask this morning that that's exactly what it will accomplish within us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great stuff. Okay. So as we've seen at this point, again, in Jesus' ministry, his fame has grown and the crowds are following him everywhere. But among the crowds, we find this morning, is someone who you might not expect to be there. Take a look again at verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. So right at the start of this passage, we're introduced, are not we, to another person called Jairus. And we're also told his occupation or his job, if you like that he is a ruler of the synagogue. So whereas in, in the previous two passages, we saw, we remember, sort of two social outcasts, didn't we? Again, the, the demon-possessed man and also the woman uh, with the issue of, of bleeding. Here, we have a, another person at the other end of the spectrum of society. But again, here he is in need of Jesus. Okay? Jairus was a ruler. He was a leader in his circle, a man of great reputation. And you know what's interesting about this as well? Mark doesn't generally give us the names of people in his gospel. We don't know who the the demon, we don't know the name of the guy, do we? We don't know the name of the woman in the past few. But Jairus, he gives us his name. You see, he's a known man. Okay? And when he comes to this... um, This man, Jesus, again, who on the surface was just seemingly a a carpenter's son from Nazareth. What do we do? What does the ruler do when he sees Jesus? It's amazing this. The end of verse 22 says, he says, seeing him, this is a ruler, he falls at Jesus' feet. This is a peculiar reversal. Jairus, with no regard for his reputation or his status, throws himself at the feet of Jesus you see folks listen death is a terror for all people to the poor and to the rich death you see has no regard for status or for reputation it doesn't wait does it for a convenient time Jairus was a ruler but death still came knocking, if you like, on his door. He probably had great wealth as well, all the medical help that he could, that he could afford, but it was useless, it could not save his daughter. Again, you know, we dad just touched on this again, what's amazing in this passage, we, we must not be mistaken here, Jairus is not a man, okay, who became a devoted follower of Jesus, a man of great faith, all right? again just like the woman we heard about last week he came didn't he out of his need out of his need the simple fact is as we've seen again he was a desperate man a hopeless man it was his love for his daughter that compelled him to come to jesus that's what it was this poor guy must have been at his wits end so again what happens He's at his wits' end, he's hopeless. He hears, looked at this last week again, he hears news of this travelling preacher miracle man, okay? And hope begins to stir in him. Jesus, if you like, becomes his last chance, his only hope. And he falls at his feet. Verse 23 says this, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. You can almost hear, can't you, the desperation and hopelessness in his voice. My little daughter is at the point of death. Obviously he knows, doesn't he? His daughter doesn't have long here. She doesn't have long. Please come and do something. Please, I beg you. Verse 24 says this. And he, Jesus, went with him. Jesus responds to his request. He sees his desperation, he hears his plea, and he responds. What an encouragement that just is objectively for us, isn't it? Okay, his compassion that he has. You see, Jesus comes to those who earnestly seek him. In Jairus' mind, though, the only issue is this. Can I get him to my daughter in time? that's what he's thinking she's at the point of death i need to get him to her quickly the clock again is ticking certainly the last thing jairus needs right now okay is for jesus to get distracted however en route as we just read that's exactly what happens isn't it the woman with the issue of blood who we heard about last week comes and touches him and, and, and has a, you know, a conversation and shoes, etc etc but it's a delay for Jairus it's a massive blow for him it's great for the woman but a blow for him and if we jump now all the way to verse 35 we can read of its effect on, on the daughter take a look verse 35 says this while he was still speaking there came from the ruler's house someone who said your daughter is dead here it is the news that Jairus had been dreading your little girl is dead you know we can already see can't we how much Jairus loved his daughter by the fact that he was willing to risk his whole reputation You know, it would have took a long time for him to become a ruler of the synagogue and he's saying look I don't care I'm putting all that aside. And those four words, your daughter is dead, must have been the worst phrase you could ever hear in his life. The weight of that statement would have crushed him. It would have been like a dagger of be through his heart. You know, at one time or other, I'm sure we've all heard and felt similar. You know, I'm speaking into a room here where I know There are people who've heard those words. Your husband has died. Your wife has died. Your son, your daughter, your friend has died. You know, me and Mel heard this week of a a friend's dad dying. It's heartbreaking, always. So to some extent, we can sympathise, if you like, with this man's grief. You know, however, I think it's said that the worst of the worst is for a father and mother to bury their own child. You know, on the surface, at this point in time, the healing of this woman, okay, has resulted in a catastrophic delay for this young girl. She'd run out of time. And if that wasn't enough, bad enough, okay, the the person burying the bad news says this. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's dismissive, isn't it? Leave him alone. What's the point, Jairus? She's dead. She's gone. Let him go his own way. Basically what they're saying with this phrase is this. Death is final. That's it. There's no way of coming back from this. You know what's interesting here, though, again in the passage, is we see this title given to Jesus, which we saw in the Carmen of the Storm. Teacher. Remember that? The disciple said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You see, in giving Jesus that title is an assumption. Because, of course, Jesus is a teacher you know we see that in the parables and things like that but if Jesus is just a teacher then of course he doesn't have anything to offer does he? nothing wise words aren't going to help his daughter are they? education isn't going to help his daughter now more knowledge is useless therapeutic cliches just aren't going to cut it but again listen listen in the st- calming of the storm, what did Jesus establish? I'm no mere teacher. I'm much more. The bearers of this bad news had a huge flaw in their understanding of who Jesus is. And I'll say it again, and I've said it up many times, this is what Mark's gospel is all about. You see, Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1, is the Son of God. That's who he is. He's the Christ. And the people still haven't understood it. And with this statement, Jairus might be ready to concede defeat. However, for Jesus, this is what's amazing. It's just another opportunity to provoke faith. Listen to his words in verse 36. But overhearing what they said, this is Jesus, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Don't fear. Only believe. Just as he said to his disciples in the boat with the storm, why are you afraid? Remember, he said that to them. This same medicine, if you like, is offered to Jairus. Don't fear, just believe. Once again, Jesus prescribes belief and faith in him as the antidote to fear. That's the medicine. Not just intellectual acknowledgement of who he is, but that deep rooted trust in spite of overwhelming circumstances. That's what, again, that's the biblical definition of faith. It's amazing, isn't it, how confident our Lord is of his power. That message which pierced Jairus' heart that his daughter was dead, it didn't stop Jesus for a moment. If you like, he's still going so now the tables have turned in the passage Jairus comes to Jesus for a healing and Jesus is now challenging him for a resurrection amazing isn't it what a development how could he have known that that mustard seed of faith was going to bring such great rewards verse 37 we're at the house now and Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter James and John the brother of James this is what he does in Mark a lot as well. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Obviously this sounds, doesn't it, like an absolute ridiculous question to ask. Are you mad, Jesus? A little girl has just died. But then he goes on to make another ridiculous statement, if you like. The child's not dead. She is sleeping. You know, skeptics could say here that she wasn't really dead. She was just in a coma. But remember, Jesus couldn't have known that. It was the, root, it was the people from the house that said she was dead. So what's happening here is Jesus is pronouncing a future miracle is going to take place. It's okay that she's dead. In one sense. Again, her death in this instance is going to be no more than just a sleep. And the people's response, naturally, they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was and taken her by the hand. I love that. I love that scene. I love the, the compassion and delicacy he demonstrates here. Jesus is facing death the most vicious, destructive enemy of the human race. And such is his power that he holds this child by the hand and leads us straight out of it. He's saying, listen, by his actions, if I have you by the hand, death is just sleep. That's what he's saying. What's amazing about this as well, actually, Jesus doesn't need to take her by the hand, does he? Remember Jairus, uh, sorry, Lazarus, okay? He'd been dead in the tomb for four days. The stone is rolled away. Jesus doesn't go in and shake him or perform some thing voodoo ritual on him, does he? He spoke it. He says, Lazarus, come forth. So he doesn't need to take her hand, but he's chosen to do that. I've not got this here, but I think the reason for that is because he responded to Jairus' request when Jairus says, come and lay your hand on her. And Jesus does exactly what he's asking her to do. And he takes her by the hand and he says to her, Talitha which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Again, there's a couple of fascinating things about these words as well. First one is why has Mark chosen to include them here? And if you didn't know, the New Testament was orit- uh, originally written in ancient Greek. But Mark here decides to leave the original Aramaic words in. And tradition notes that it was Peter who was the source of Mark's gospel. And what it indicates to us is that these words made such an impact on Peter, who was in the room, that every time he'd be like, he tells this story, he can't help but just, he can't help but say those words. Again, you can just imagine him telling this story to other believers. And secondly, don't miss again those four words at the end of the text. It says, I say to you. Again, here's where we see the authority of our Lord. That authority that commands waves to be stilled, that authority that commands the legion of demons to come out, authority that has just a touch of him. He says, I say to you. And because I say to you, You can rise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Again, another reoccurring theme. We've seen in these stories of Jesus' powers, once again, that when the miracle's been done, there's a shift of awe and amazement and fear. It's the people now who are amazed. Again, what question are they asking? Who is this man? What is going on here? Who is this man? And that's how we should be approaching it. Even those that have been believers for years. Okay, who is this man? In verse 43, he strictly ch- charged them not, he charged tricked that no one should know this and told them to give us something to eat. And again, it's fascinating, isn't it, that where other miracle workers usually want to publicize the miracles, Jesus wants to do the exact opposite. He wants to avoid people confusing his mission you see he doesn't want to draw crowds simply to show off his miracles he isn't just a profound teacher but neither is he just a profound miracle worker you see his mission actually and this is what we again we'll see his mission is not just to come his mission is to is the cross that's the goal that's where he's heading and he doesn't want distraction from that so again an amazing passage isn't it what an incredible passage it is an amazing incredible encounter again of Jesus' unique power and his authority don't forget these all right don't forget these come back to them time and time again remember who he is again what by giving us four accounts he's saying look is the message getting through here is the message getting through Four areas of life, four enemies, again, that are outside of our control, all bow to this man, Jesus Christ. And again, I said, I think it's significant that Mark has ended this section with death. And this is a theme that I just want to reflect on uh, more closely before we finish. You know, the reality of dying and death, for most of us, I'd say for the majority of probably, is a terrifying, frightening prospect. The fear of death is universal and it can be seen throughout all generations and all cultures. The Duke of Wellington once said that a man must be a coward or a liar who could never boast of having felt a fear of death. Again, death doesn't ask us, do we have husbands or wives? It doesn't ask you, do you have loving parents? It doesn't ask you, are you a good, upstanding citizen in your community? It doesn't ask you, are you a pillar of your local church? It comes unannounced and no one is left off its hook. All of our worldly plans, hopes, ambitions, expectations are brought to a close by its finality. And deep down, we all know this, don't we? But for the majority of our lives, what we want to do is put it to the, to the, to the end of our mi- minds as much as we can. You know, if, you, if you're anything like me, and I always get told off for this, you ignore doctor's appointments, don't you? And dentist appointments and any appointments, okay? We just assume that our bodies will just go on forever. You know, the only ex- acceptable place to talk about death, where is it? It's a funeral, isn't it? Bizarrely. Funerals are peculiar events. Of course, they're tragic and sad. I don't want to demean that. But they always seem as well to focus our minds. Because we're reminded that one day, it will be our own funeral someday that people will be attending. They force us, if you like, to dwell on ultimate things. Why am I here? What am I living for? Who am I? What happens to me when I die? Again, they confront us, if you like, with the reality of our mortality. But what happens often is when the funeral is over, of course, unless it's a deceased family member, we right away place those thoughts at the back of our minds, and again, try and keep death as far away as possible. And you know, in previous generations, due to life expectancy being so much lower, Seeing death and watching relatives die was a common occurrence. But what's happened in our culture is interesting. Due to the advancement of modern medicine and modern healthcare, death is more than ever being hidden from us. The majority of people decline and die in hospitals or hospices, away from the eyes of the general public. And instead of becoming accustomed to seeing death, it actually leaves many people Unaccustomed and unprepared. That this means that when we when we confront death, we're paralyzed with an anxiety and fear because we don't have a we don't really have a framework now to deal with it in our society. We, hi- we hide it away. So that's a little bit, I think, on again how, how our culture treats death ultimately. But what I want to do, I think what's interesting is this morning the text reveals actually death's biggest blow death's biggest blow and why people fear it so much is not so much in the act of dying again that goes quite quickly that passes death's biggest blow is inevitably the separation that it brings in Jairus's case it was separation from his daughter this was the source of his fear again because he loved his daughter it was that separation that is so hard It's that separation that causes so much grief. And I want to comfort you this morning. Jesus went through those emotions as well. The Bible says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus felt the loss and separation of a loved one. Again, we've just seen it now, but the shortest verse in the Bible, do you know what it is? Jesus wept. But do you know why he wept? Because his friend Lazarus died. That's why he wept. And John 11:36 says this: "And when the Jews saw Jesus' tears, they said, "See how much He loved him." What's crazy is Jesus felt the sorrow and grief, even though he knew he was going to raise him, which is mad. You see the raising of Jairus' daughter in our passage this morning is both a deed of compassion but also a pledge of a conquering king over death. This little girl is an example to us. That's why it's in our Bibles. Symbolically, she is a pledge of what Christ will do for those who put their faith in him. He will call Believe in people from their graves. He will gather them together, all different tribes, tongues and nations, and that separation will be over. He's a great reconciler. Believe in parents will once more see their believing in children. Believe in husbands shall once more see their believing in wives you see there's coming a day folks listen when your daughter your son your wife your husband is dead will never be heard anymore not amazing the great baptist preacher charles spurgeon said this death in its substance has been removed only the shadow of it remains nobody's afraid of a shadow for a shadow cannot block a man's pathway even for a moment The shadow of a dog can't bite, the shadow of a sword can't kill. Christ himself took the full force of death's destroying power by dying and paying for our sin, then rising from the grave. Trusting Jesus may not remove death's shadow, but remember, shadows cannot hurt us. You see, there's essentially three ways to consider death in our culture. The first is to regard death as natural and something that we should just embrace when it comes. That's the naturalistic understanding. The second is is, is to view death as something that must be avoided at all costs. But the third is this. This is the Christian one. This is the biblical one. is to regard death as an enemy. An enemy that must be defeated. But you might say, how effective is it, though, Matt Jairus? daughter will die again we will die the bible has something clear i think to say on this in his wisdom you see listen god has decided not to apply all of christ's redemptive work at once to us but rather gradually over time here's how the apostle paul responded to a similar charge in his day again those who are laughing at him if you like about the resurrection of the dead listen carefully to these words 1 Corinthians 15. He says, "Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how come some of you say there is no resurrection?" That's what Paul's saying. And Paul says, "Look, logically, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. The whole thing's a waste of time. This is a waste of time. We are even being found to misrepresenting God, that's what Paul's saying, because we testify about a God who's raised Christ, whom if he, did not, if he did not rise, it is true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep, that phrase again, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's true, isn't it? It might not be true for us because we live in relative comfort, but I think of my brothers and sisters all over the world, they're being killed for believing in Christ. If Christ isn't raised, they are most to be pitied, aren't they? Listen to how Paul goes on. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's the phrase. He's the first one to rise and stay risen. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam we all die, so in Christ we shall all be made alive. But each in his own order again. Christ is the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to him that's the biblical pattern then comes the end paul says when he delivers the kingdom to god the father after destroying every rule every authority and every power for he must reign listen to this now until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death again death is not just a natural part of life to the christian we should grieve and be upset about it because it's an enemy it's unnatural it's not how god made it to be and every time someone dies it reminds us that god's work is not yet complete because of sin again death has entered the world and only when sin is completely defeated will death cease to be a part of that question And the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ stands again as a sure and reliable promise that someday death will be no more. As long as Christ is off the cross, we don't have to fear death. All right? As long as the tomb's empty next Sunday, which it still is, we don't have to fear death, do we? We don't have to fear it. This is Christianity, folks, in its simplest form, okay? Faith in Christ saves us that's it all right do you have that security if you're not in Christ you don't that's the reality and I urge you if you haven't yet come to him you have a deep need rich poor whatever aspect of society you have can provide for you listen folks he that raised the daughter of Jairus still lives okay I want to close with this. In Revelation, John falls on his feet after seeing Christ in a vision, he says this. He, that is Jesus, places his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. That phrase again. It's almost like he knows we're going to be fearful, isn't it? do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And then he says this. I hold, the, I hold the keys of death in Hades. Listen, friends, the, de- the keys of death are in our Lord Jesus Christ's hands. We have no reason to fear it. For those who believe death comes to us, no long, for those who believe death no longer comes to us as a, a penalty or punishment for our sins. Do you know that? But a result, as a result of living in a fallen world. What does the song say? No guilt in life. No fear in death. It's the power of Christ in me. We all sing that, don't we? No fear, no guilt in life. There's no guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no fear in death anymore. Why? Because this is the power of Christ in us. That's our song, isn't it, as Christians? okay what an amazing truth that is amen let's pray father we actually pray for your help for all of us in this Lord, I pray that you would give us, increase our faith. Lord, we all fear this anxiety and fear, and we all, we all again, fear uh, that separation, and um, we're not perfect. And we ask for that power, Lord, that, that renewing of our minds to have that clearer perspective of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we're so thankful. such a hope lord help us to um to proclaim that i pray for my brothers and sisters here i thank you for them i pray that you increase their faith in jesus name amen